Hello, everyone. This is Mark with Speak Brave Podcast. Welcome to, to this week's show. Very excited. I have a special guest, uh, a veteran, a community leader who will share his incredible true story of the things that he's working in the community. And today's guest name is Dan Jarvis, and he is an executive director and founder of 220 nonprofit organization. So, hey, Dan. Hey, Mark, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for coming. Hey, thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Uh, so, would you mind just telling us who you are and what do you do and how it all came about? Uh, the, the backstory is, you know, in 2011, I was in Afghanistan. I was an infantry squad leader. Um, during that deployment in the fighting season, four of my men had been medevaced out of country not to return to the theater. Uh, one of my soldiers was killed, and I felt extremely responsible for his death. Um, as a leader, you know, you, you push forward and you push forward and you push forward, and you never admit that, hey, man, I got, I got, I got struggles. And when we lost Doug on August the 19th in 2011, my job was in the lead striker. We were going off-road on the Shaw Joy District on a, on a route we call Route Snake, and it was defined as a black route, which means it wasn't cleared of any IEDs, so we were basically... Uh, throwing the dice and going off-road on that path. And in the lead vehicle, my job was to find the IEDs, and we had an explosive ordnance disposal team attached to us, and they would come up and defuse the bombs. Um, but that specific day, it, it was 9.36 in the morning, I could tell you the exact time, when I heard the explosion behind me in the convoy, and I looked back and I saw the fourth vehicle had been hit, um, I knew I'd screwed up. And what I didn't do was something as a leader as I should have had said something to my chain of command because three weeks prior to that I was leading a patrol across the uh, Tarnak River um, taking four Americans and four Afghanis uh, to pick up food for the Afghanis they have halal meals and we were doing a four-day operation up on a mountain so I brought the guys down along with the Afghanis and and an interpreter and I stepped on a pressure plate which detonated an IED about five feet away Um, I was taken off the battle roster for about seven days, and I was doing everything I could to get back on the battle roster because I wanted to lead my men. And But I had, from that point forward, I was sleep-deprived. Like, I literally had no sleep. I was a zombie for the three weeks before losing Doug, which means I wasn't 100%, and I should not have been in that lead striker. You know, But me as a leader, you know, couldn't say anything to anybody because I didn't want to be taken out of the fight. You know, I wanted to be with my men, and I wanted to, to lead them. Um, as the deployment um, was coming to an end, um, I'd got a Red Cross notification where I, had, I lost my mom. Uh, she died of a massive heart attack at the age of 66. Uh, so I ended up finding myself leaving my guys in Afghanistan uh, for an additional three to four weeks without me. And after the funeral services, I found, I'm, I'm back in, in Fairbanks, Alaska. Um, first thing I do is I go to the liquor store and I buy a case of beer. And you know what? I found out I could sleep. All right? Unfortunately, it was going to cost me at least a 12-pack of beer a night. So that became my routine. You know, I would drink to sleep. And I lived in a basement apartment off post. You know, at some point, I thought that um, life would return to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're self-medicating and you're sleep-deprived, those are two of the biggest inhibitors to, to help you actually physically and emotionally process trauma. So... Um, I constantly had those nightmares. I constantly had those intruding thoughts. Um, uh, you know, when we lost Doug, Doug was an only child. So anytime I saw his mom post something on Facebook, it was just ripping my soul out. 
at that time, I wasn't married and I had no kids. The, the, my life was the military. Um, before I deployed with that unit, I was a drill sergeant for uh, two years out of Fort Knox. Um, before that, I, I came right from a deploying unit. So I went from you know, deploying unit, 15 months to Iraq, to drill sergeant duty, right back into a deploying unit. So uh, my, my life for that four or five years was extremely fast-paced, um, a very high op tempo, mm-hmm. um, which I enjoyed. I, I enjoyed that, that kind of a lifestyle you know, because most of us in the military were adrenaline junkies. Um, but when you come to the point where like, man, something's not, something's not right. You know, it's not right. I mean, I knew what PTSD was because we have to look out for that in our men. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's times where I would take my guys to mental health counseling and say, and they're like, you know, I wouldn't even give them a choice in the matter. And I think they were relieved that I did that because it took the pressure off of them. You know, it was more like, oh, Sergeant Jarvis is taking somebody down to mental health again. But the problem is I couldn't do anything for myself, you know, and I thought, I'm like, how do I do this? Well, I can't self-report because if I self-report to my command, they're going to move me back on base. They're going to put me in barracks. They're going to take my guns. They're going to take my men away. They're going to take my responsibilities away, which means they'll take my pride away and everything else with it. So um, at that point, I'm like, what, what, what do I do? You know, yeah. um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid to say it. I, you know, even as a drill sergeant, I was a mama's boy. You know, and when, when I lost my mom, it was like a part of me died. And I had I had no responsibilities, nobody to care for, no kids. And I made the decision that it would be easier to end my own life than to ask for help. And March 2nd, 2013, I was sitting there in my room, my basement apartment bedroom, looking at a rifle in the corner of my room. And I was like, you know, one second is all it takes and I'm done. And the misery is over with. Because, you know, when you get stuck in that 24-7 misery cycle, it's a loop-de-loop. You know, and you don't think life's going to get better. It's physically demanding on the body. It's it makes you sick. Your stress levels are crazy. Your cortisol levels reverse. You know, and even drinking so much, I ended up a type two diabetic. Um, so I, that was it. I was I was at a point where I was done. And there was two things that happened that prevented it. And it's it occurred that night as I was up to go grab the rifle. I I heard the kids in the apartment above me running across my ceiling. And I, it kind of snapped me out of it. I'm like, whoa, whoa, you know, high-powered rifle, um, apartment floor. I, I didn't want to hurt a kid. I didn't want to hurt the parent of a kid. You know, my, you know, beef was with myself. Um, so I passed out that night. And the next morning, about 8.30, I got a phone call from one of my guys, Ryan. And uh, he said, hey, Sergeant Jarvis, did you hear about Corey? And I'm like, no, what, what happened? He said, Corey shot and killed himself last night. The same night, the as, same as, night. As, as you were in this in, in that position. Yes. To choose. Yep. So, you know, let's fast forward a week, you know, just preparation for the memorial service for uh, Corey. Um, I realized that that could no longer be my option because I saw how negatively it impacted the men. And, and as a leader, I didn't want to give my guys permission to do the same thing. And so I just fought it. I, I, I still drank a lot. I still self-medicated. I still isolated But, you know, I realized that, you know, suicide just, it couldn't be, couldn't be it. And, you know, the thing is, nobody knew Corey was struggling, maybe a couple of his close friends. And then I realized, well, you know what? Nobody had a clue that I was struggling. Not one person. So Corey was part of your unit? Uh, yes. Part of- I, I had gone from a line infantry unit up into the staff world because I was a senior ranking staff sergeant in the battalion. So all of my line time was done. But he was in the platoon that I had just come out of. So it would have been catastrophic for that unit morally or emotionally 
um, for two people to to check out at the same time. It, it would it would destroy the morale and and you know they always do what they call these stand down days after a, a soldier commits suicide and and they they talk and they talk and you know they bring in speakers. But the the reality is. Unless you know what's deep down going into the emotions of the the individual, you know you can't really get to it. So, um, I found myself, you know, just just struggling day by day. You know, you know, putting one foot in front of the other and getting up and going to work. I hated weekends. I hated long weekends. I didn't like holidays. I, you know, four day weekends were miserable because, you know, as long as I was busy and I was engaged, I was okay. You know, it's when things slowed down and 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 you had time to think that things got real bad. May I ask you this question? Sure. So when, when you say the weekends, yeah. So that means that you are not engaging with the other people with their. So what kind of self dialogue did you have? Like what what kind of thoughts were running in your head that were not helpful, destructive? My self dialogue. I it's it's kind of a term I use like automatic negative thinking or mm-hmm. or ants. Um, I hated myself. One, because we lost a soldier. You know, it's one thing to take the life of, of an enemy that's trying to kill you or your fr- friends. It's something different to be responsible for the death of an American. So I really was, you know, I'd wake up in the morning. I'm like, man, I suck. You know, my life is crap, you know. And that was my internal dialogue constantly. So you, you start saying stuff like that, especially if you're saying it out loud to yourself. You start believing it. And, you know, it's a struggle. You know, that negative thinking, it, it, it crushes your soul. Right. So... So what 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 happened after? Well, um, actually, I had um, three surgeries. I had a surgery on both shoulders and my left knee, and then with a diabetic diagnosis, the army said, "You're you're no longer you're longer, no longer needed. We need your position for somebody that's healthy." And I get that. I fully understand that. That if you're not healthy, you can't occupy a position. You know, because you're talking national security at that point. So September 11th of 2014, I took a, took the uniform off. And I drove from uh, Fairbanks, Alaska to Florida. And that started my transition journey. I had no clue how difficult transition was going to be. But I was still struggling. So, you know, I had made, you know, deployments. You make make good money on deployments and don't pay taxes and you can save up some money. So I had a property that was owned outright and I had a vehicle that was owned outright. So I really didn't have a lot of financial obligations. And I moved back into my condominium in in Winter Haven. Um, But and then I had a retirement check. So the drinking continued. You know, the, the nightmares continued, the, the intruding thoughts continued. And then, you know, I realized something had to give, something had to change. So I, I find myself, I went back into law enforcement. I put a uniform back on and I carried a gun in again and things kind of calmed down. I was able to control a lot of the drinking at that point because you're working, you go home, you sleep, you get up, you work, you go home, you sleep. You have a purpose. Um, so, it, so it's really critical to have purpose, to be part of something bigger than yourself. Um, and then I met my wife, um, she didn't know me from my military service. And it came to a point where with the back issues and gun belts, you know, the career in law enforcement just didn't seem like a viable option anymore. So I took the uniform back off and that's when it started all over again. You know, you have that, that idle mind is truly the devil's playground. And then you get into that negative self, self-talk and then you get into, you know, wanting to self-medicate with alcohol. You're getting stressed out and the first thing you want to do is grab a beer you know, or a glass of wine or something. Um, and my wife was like, you know, what is, what's going on? I mean, she would literally wake me up in the middle of the night because I'm like literally running in my sleep and I'm moving around the bed and I'm yelling out. Um, and I'd have such bad night sweats 
that it was just, it was horrendous. So um, she asked me to go get help and I love my wife dearly and I didn't want to screw up my marriage. So I went, um, found myself at the VA and the first thing I got was a prescription for medication. And I'm like, this is not what I want. I don't want a drug. I want to fix this. How do I fix this? Uh, they started me on uh, what's called prolonged exposure therapy. Mm-hmm. I don't recommend it to anybody. Um, it's basically reliving and retelling the event, and it, emotionally it takes you right back to that event, and they try to desensitize you to it. And the VA had canceled a couple appointments from me. The first cancellation I couldn't get in for four weeks. The second cancellation I couldn't get in for eight weeks. And this is something that's supposed to be every single week. And after the second cancellation, I just stopped going, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't go back. And my wife's like, what's going on? I said, well, they couldn't see me for two more months. And she knew I was getting worse. My symptoms were getting worse uh, because it's kind of like taking a tourniquet off of a, an emotional wound. And all the flood of emotions come out. And I found myself um, still looking for answers. And then by some freak nature, my wife um, brought in a gentleman to do some training um, at her sheriff's office. And he was a retired uh, colonel from the Army. Um, we had dinner with them. He's really big on transitioning and, you know, found myself invited to a men's leadership weekend. And then all of a sudden I, I, I might meet a couple people there that are into the alternative treatments. Um, one was a psychologist and the other one was a basically a fundraiser for another organization. And so I'm like, I'm all ears, you know, there's got to be a better way. And that's kind of my thing is find a better way and to share it. Um, and then September of 2018, I find myself uh, invited to come out to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, I knew I wanted to work with the veterans and first responders because that's my that's who I am, and the, the suicide rates among both of those um, groups are catastrophically astronomical. Um, that growing too, right? Oh, it's it's so. growing. Yeah, the um, the CDC and the National Institute of Health put out a study in 2017 because they're usually about two years behind in data. Uh, nationally, in the U.S., there's 47,000 suicides in 2017. They expected it to be 42,000, so they actually they had a 5,000 bump. Um, in one year that they couldn't explain for. So, you know, I find myself in Albuquerque and they're telling me about this new treatment called the Reconsolidation of Traumatic Memories Protocol, or they call it RTM. And I'm like, yeah, it sounds a little too good to be true, snake oily. I'm like, yeah, okay, well, if I'm going to recommend veterans to do something like this, I've got to experience it. I want to, I want to, I want to see what this is like. And they said, do you want to do it today? I'm like, yeah, let's go for it. And he goes, how about in 10 minutes? I'm like, sure. How about in front of the class? So I literally sat in a chair in front of of about 30 mental health counselors, and they ran the RTM protocol Mm -hmm. without having to go through the full event. All they do is get you to activate the emotional center of the brain. You you have a parasympathetic response, and then they pull you out of it. And then there's like a four-hour window where they can actually run this process. And it's basically... Um, a visualization process that you internally have to do in your own brain, you know, imagery like, you know, a picture from before the event and a picture after the event, and then drain the color out of it. And then you disassociate, you know, they, they use a setup like a movie theater. Mm-hmm. And it's like this, like, this doesn't make sense to me. And then I go through this, and then 42 minutes later, 45 minutes later, I'm looking at this guy. I'm like, what kind of Jedi stuff is this? Because you feel the emotional shift so rapidly. Um, and then what it does, you know, the, the, they call it the reconsolidation of traumatic memories is because trauma is stored differently than regular memories. If it's an unresolved uh, traumatic event, you know, think about as a kid, you stick your hand in a candle and you burn your hand. Well, guess what? You know not to put your hand in the candle for the rest of your life. 
So that information stores in your amygdala, and that's the reptilian part of the brain at the base of the brainstem. And when they run this process, the, the trauma stores in the same manner. We delete, we, we generalize, we distort data. Um, in traumatic memories, we typically delete and distort. So after you run this process, and what it does is it's telling the unconscious brain, hey, wait a minute, the picture at the front end, there was a beginning to the trauma. The picture at the back end, there was an end to the trauma. So unconsciously, your brain is seeing this as, okay, it's a black and white image, beginning and end. Oh, this is old. Wait a minute, I don't need to be fighting or, or fleeing. You know, I don't need to be in that fight or flight response. And then by the time you're done with this process, you're, you're ended up, you know, I think I started off on a, on a stress scale of zero to 10. I was around a nine on a specific event. And then in 45 minutes, I'm at like a one. That's wow. huge. That's a huge um, shift in the emotional state. Um, and it, it only takes like three to five sessions. So if it's a single event incident, three sessions and you're done. You know, if you have complex PTSD, you know, that Dr. Burke says if you do more than five sessions, you're not doing it right. So um, hmm. you can clear out multiple traumatic events with five sessions. And it's kind of funny how the brain works. It's They call it the gestalt or, or the string of pearls. You pull one pearl out and the rest fall away. So trauma, literally the emotional tra states actually neurologically connect. So if you're traumatized at five and then again at 10, well, guess what? There's now a link between the emotional state between those two because your brain knows what the trauma feels like at five. So now all of a sudden, the 10-year-old trauma is connected to that. And then you have something at 20 or 30 and they all connect. So if you can get the main root cause and clear it, um, most of the time, the rest of the trauma falls away. It's, it's pretty remarkable. It is remarkable. As I'm listening to you, Dan, it affects and it works with PTSD uh, victims. It also affects, um, who else does, does it connect to and how effective is it? Well, first thing, let, let me correct the victim part. Uh -huh. we, we need to change that, that. But that is a big problem within the veteran population. We tend to self-identify as a victim. And when we get into the victim mindset, it's so hard for us to overcome. Uh, but this isn't just a veteran or first responder. We, we've connected. Um, there was a, a lady from Alaska, and her son was bullied um, relentlessly at school. Her son was hospitalized for like 36 days and medicated, and he went through months and months and months of therapy. And she heard me on another podcast and asked. She called. She goes, I, I basically was at tears when I heard your story. And she's like, do you think this will help my son? I said, well, it will absolutely, it'll change his life. And so we ended up, she lived, she moved to Montana, and then we ended up connecting her with a counselor in Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, and which is where the initial training was. That's where I first went, and that was the closest to her. And we were able to get her connected with them because they just finished a training, so they had to do two clients pro bono until they could get certified to administer the RTM. So I said, they'll, they'll treat them for free, and it would be worth a week for you guys to go get a hotel. Um, and, you know, I just kind of moved on, and I'd forgot about it. You know, I'd made the connection with the, the counseling center. And then 90, 90 days later, I get an email from her just absolutely thanking me for giving her, her her son back because now he's out playing with kids. His nightmares are stopped. His flashbacks are stopped. His nervous tics are, are gone. Um, he's reengaged at school. He's able to do things that a normal kid does now. Imagine that kid 20 years from now traumatized from the, the, the bullying event. Where is he in 20 years? Could be in prison, could be dead, or just a miserable human being. And now that he's cleared the trauma, and we're talking like four days he was done with it, and he went back to who he was as a, as a kid before the events. 
where is he going to be in 20 years from now? You know, talk about being brave. You know, I, I always say our motto is healing the hero. And that's kind of what our objective is, military first responders. But uh, truly a hero is anybody who has to fight their, their demons, fight their trauma and come out on the other side. So that 14-year-old kid to me is a hero. So it's pretty remarkable. Remarkable. So then, uh, would you tell us what's next for you with your nonprofit? Um, how can people reach out and the best way to do that and help? Okay. Um, the next step for us is we're actually creating a coaching platform um, to be able to train veterans to do the RTM protocol on a peer to peer level. There are licensing exemptions for nonprofit organizations, church organizations, government agencies. So we can actually treat a veteran uh, who has PTSD, run them through the RTM protocol, clear their trauma uh, with no charge, no cost. So like, you know, if, it, if we were paying $2,000 for one um, veteran to get trained and he stays active doing only two a month for 10 years, at the end of that 10 years, he's treating and clearing. For us, it's a cost of about 33 cents a person. So we are going to be in Tallahassee December 4th through the 7th. We're going to be at the Florida Sheriff's Association conducting a training. Uh, we have three active duty military personnel that are going to be getting trained, two Air Force members and one Army Green Beret. And then we have first responders that are going to start getting trained, and we're going to have a group of veterans alongside of licensed mental health counselors. And what we need is for licensed mental health counselors, if you're listening to the podcast, you need to research this. You can reach out to me, dan at 220.org. That's 220.org. I'll email you the research. You can look at it yourself. It's, it's evidence-based. Major study going on right now at Walter Reed, um, comparing it to the, um, the, the prolonged exposure therapy. I'm excited when that study gets finished. It'll be this Christmas time, and they'll probably publish early spring, midsummer. Um, the science is already settled. I mean, we have a greater than 90% success rate with three to five non-medicated sessions. Uh, we're on Facebook, so 220 on Facebook. Um, please like our group and share it with your communities. Ask your, 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 your friends to follow us um, because every time we do that and we get another connection, um, people reach out and we're able to connect them with uh, the resources. Uh, we find funding sources for veterans to get treated. Um, we, you know, we've sponsored mental health counselors. We've now in starting to sponsor actual veterans, um, so that we can start taking care of ourselves. Now, it, it, this isn't a, a silver bullet, um, for mental health. This is a way to deal with a trauma piece, get rid of the PTSD, because then there's always going to be underlying causes that veteran is going to probably still need counseling, cognitive behavioral therapy or cognitive processing therapy, where they can then how do I re-engage society? How do I re-engage my relationship with my wife or my kid or my son or my daughter or my husband? And uh, and then the real work can get done once you clear the trauma. So, uh, yeah, 220.org.org is our website. Um, Facebook, we're on Instagram. I'm still trying to figure out Instagram. but yeah. uh, I will make sure once this episode goes live and published, I will have a link to your email, link to your Facebook page, and to your website as well. So once awesome. people hear your story and this interview, they'll be able to connect with you easily and move forward. And appreciate the uh, opportunity to come in here. Um, I love it. It's awesome. It is. Thank you so much for your time and sharing so freely. And I can feel your passion and I can feel the, the, the depth of your realness. 
um, if that's even a word. <laughs> so thank you everyone who's listening. Uh, make sure that you like, share, and subscribe, and you choose to be brave. You choose your courage every day because there is truly is no other way to live. And make sure you share this podcast with all the people you love and care about. Until next time, I'll see you and make sure you speak brave.